Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to My Perfect Console. I'm Simon Parkin and in each episode I invite a guest to pick the five video games they would like to immortalise on their very own fictional games machine. Perhaps it was the first game they received as a birthday present or the one that so obsessed them it caused them to fail their exams or maybe it was the only thing that got them through a difficult breakup. Games, a bit like songs, often become powerfully attached to a particular moment in our lives. When we return to them, they can become warp points to the past. So join me, Simon Parkin, for my perfect console. My guest today is a game director who has pioneered new forms of non-linear storytelling that blend film and games. After a 12-year stint at the British development studio Climax, where he directed Silent Hill Shattered Memories, he began work on an independent project, her story. In a game which was partly inspired by Sharon Stone's audition tapes for the film Basic Instinct, you sift through a trove of police interview footage to uncover a mystery. Her story style of disconnected, live-action sleuthing has become characteristic of my guest's work, which includes the game's Telling Lies and, most recently, the Netflix-published Immortality, a game described by Prospect magazine as a culture-spanning, psycho-visual experiment. All my games have been about identity, he says. It's scary that the people we've known for decades are unknowable to us. Welcome, Sam Barlow. Wow, that was quite an intro. That made me sound very exciting. (laughs) You are very exciting. Yeah, well, I'm I'm hoping we can get to know you a little bit through this conversation, at least. I think the, the last time I spoke to you was shortly after her story came out and um you told me that you spent some of your childhood growing up in tanzania is that correct that is correct yeah from the age of five for a couple of years what uh, what took you out there yeah so my dad was a civil engineer so like for most of my childhood uh he wasn't senior enough so if there was a road being built he would like move to where the road was and then in this case they were building a road around a mountain i believe (laughs) Uh, obviously, as a five-year-old, I wasn't completely plugged in. But building a road around a mountain uh, out in the middle of Tanzania, <laughs> we always said, because to me, looking back and like being very self-analytical, you know, taking me out of normality and and everything that you know the the day-to-day of living in England and how that looked, and plonking me in uh, you know the middle of Tanzania for a couple of years was you know quite eye-opening i but i've got two younger brothers and i think they were possibly like too young to to kind of appreciate it but 
for me to, to, well, A, you know, be put into a different culture and see things are different and the geography is different and the weather is different, but also to then come back to England and have missed, to have missed two years of, of like stuff, like all the other kids knew about cars and sports and TV and things. And I think as, as not to get very pretentious, but I guess the storyteller was, was kind of useful to, to come back and have that, that slight sense of being kind of outside of things um mm. looking in did you feel that you sort of had some uh, um secret knowledge or something I, th- I remember the in the film mean girls this is a strange reference but Lindsay lohan's character she turns up at school after growing up in africa doesn't she and she sort of has just this other experience to the or perspective to the other children because of what she's seen did you did you feel like that like a slight slight outside yeah for sure no and no, i've always felt a strong connection to Lindsay lohan <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> you know, across all of her work, I'm very pleased to see that she's returning. And did did video games feature in your young childhood at all? Yeah, like I mean, I think you know sometimes people will ask me, especially as I do this stuff that is more kind of film and TV adjacent, like, oh, why do you choose to make video games right rather than go off and just make a movie or whatever? Mm-hmm. And part of my explanation is usually well video games were always there when we returned from tanzania i went to this tiny village school and the head teacher was very strange and somewhat obsessed with dh lawrence as kids we had no comprehension of who he was we even had a school trip to dh lawrence's birthplace which was so random like how did what wow. the parents thinking <laughs> but he would just like let us go off and play in the woods like it'd be like today let's just play in the woods. but also he would just like sign up to any scheme that was was being run, you know, for schools. So we got one of the very first computers in our school. I, I believe uh, we had a, you know, it was just this one computer and it sat in the corner. Each kid, you got like I'm going to say, you know, like an hour, an hour or so a week that you got to play on this computer. And I remember they had the the one I remember the most is there was a a text game. I've since tried to like track this down and it doesn't seem to exist anymore, though I found a couple of other people who like remember it and it appears in a catalog or something. But, uh, and it was, it was set on uh, like a desert island and you were, uh, you know, washed ashore on this desert island and the, the goal of the game was to escape. I remember correctly, there were multiple <laughs> ways to do this. And I think it was ostensibly trying to teach kids, you know, certain skills and, and, and thinking, but, you know, so you would play it for an hour, make very little progress, and then spend the entire rest of the week playing it in your head, like planning what you're going to do next time. Wow. So that was definitely, I, I'm sure if I look, you know, if I analyze these things, that was quite formative. And then after that, my parents bought us the Amstrad CPC home computer. I believe at the time, you know, you, you had a choice of home computer in the UK. There was the Commodore 64, which was very expensive, and, and that was kind of the sexy one. Had the best music and things. Uh, there was the the Spectrum, which was the cheaper one, and that was the punk rock home computer. That was all the kind of coolest bedroom coders were on the the Spectrum. And then the Amstrad CPC was the most boring. Um, but some of the the salesperson had managed to pitch them that this was the most educational of them. I'm not sure how. So we had the Amstrad CPC, which, and you know, so then my story was very similar to. A lot of kids who grew up in that world in that, you know, you had to type in, you know, you could you type in your own games or even just like running a video game you bought from the shops, you would have to at least type in like load, blah, 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 blah. Right, right. The games you typed in, they came from the back of magazines. Yes, absolutely. Again, that was, you know, living in a small village and and being interested in games and then later movies and things like 90% of what I experienced was stuff that I never even played, right? It was just looking through the magazines, pouring through these magazines, looking at screenshots, 
But yeah, the magazines would have these type-ins. Even the most casual player of games on, on like a home computer back then was going to be exposed and have to take on board a certain amount of like, how do these things work? You know, from a, a, a kind of formative age, computer games were there and I was playing them. And, and you know, this was at a point where if you identify, mean, no one identified as a gamer in that way, but like if you were interested in gaming as a hobby, you were playing everything. Like, the, you know, there were enough games that you could all, you could kind of be aware of everything coming out. Even if I had preferences for certain types of games, I would play the racing games and the sports games and the puzzle games. So, you know, when I started, I was like a teenager to write terrible fiction and uh, also was mostly like at that time thought I was going to be a painter. That was the dream. Is that because you were, you were getting encouraged in your art classes at school? I was just, I was really into it and... I had a certain talent for drawing and painting, but also like, obviously like, <laughs> and again, my parents will kill me if they were to listen to this, but you know, there's a certain amount of, of moving around a lot and, and you know, those two years in Africa and stuff. To some extent, like my formal academic training was, was somewhat disrupted by all that. So for a while, people thought that I was not necessarily very academic, but clearly had a gift for drawing and things. So they would kind of encourage me to do that sort of thing. Um, and then after a while, I kind of certainly, like in my late teens, uh, realized that I was actually reasonably academic and, and kind of caught up. And then people were like, oh, uh-huh. don't, don't worry about the painting and the drawing. You could have a job where people pay you money and, you know, you could be a professional. Can, can I just cut in? Was this... Uh- um, is this something to do with you not being um, needing glasses? Is that right? Oh, I th- wow, you've done some research here. There was something where I had not necessarily had my eyes tested. And at some point, it was like, I don't know, 11 or maybe around 11. They tested my eyes and they were like, oh, crap. Like, you need glasses to be able to think and read and pay attention to things. And I was like, oh, really? So, you know, that might, that might also have affected him. So there was definitely an element of as soon as I was, like, interested in making things and writing stories and doing paintings and stuff the the computer was there as well so as much as i was writing terrible linear fiction i was also making text adventures for my friends and as much as i was like painting and drawing i was doing pixel art and and trying to play around with kind of computer graphics tools yeah i mean i I was gonna say it's quite unusual to be dabbling in all of that so young but then i suppose if you're a creative child then you just use whatever tools are in front of you right and that might be a canvas or it might be a computer or an Amstrad. Yeah, I mean, yeah. At the point where people realized I might be somewhat academic, they would start throwing, they'd start describing me as a polymath in my school reports. And I was quite proud of that. That's a good label. And and also that, that experience that you mentioned of sort of looking through a magazine at the screenshots of games coming out and you sort of have to imagine what the game played like because you, you couldn't see it in motion. That's that's gone, hasn't it? Now, sort of, you know, any child can just hop on YouTube and watch a Let's Play or something and um, see how it all works. But yeah, there's something to be said, isn't there, for f- having to fill in those gaps, which again, I think is a bit of a theme of your work. Yeah, no, definitely. Our version of the internet was getting a magazine like once a month and reading it cover to cover a hundred times. You know, like you say, there's, there's probably games I think I've played from that era that I never played. Uh, we'll We'll get onto this, I'm sure, but like I was particularly interested in like text adventures that there was a special section within the magazine dedicated to those games and part of it would be like solutions and tips the 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 funny one would be a game called corruption which uh i was kind of obsessed with which again for a for like a, a kid playing it it was set in the financial world of london so like the first task of the game was you had to dispose of some cocaine that someone had planted on you 
So, but you would, so never having played that game, I'd seen some screenshots, you know, loved the idea of it. And then you're reading and it, because it was a text game within the magazine, it would be like, here is the solution. And they would list out, you know, uh, go to, go right. to toilet cubicle, open system, uh, take cocaine. Even though I hadn't played that game, like I had in my head, you know, played, you know, at least that was, I guess, the equivalent of watching uh, a YouTube walkthrough, right? But again, it was, you know, a, a lot <laughs> right. of emphasis placed on your imagination. So, so I've asked you to pick five games to to construct your perfect console. I have to say, um, I hadn't heard of all the games you've picked. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about the uh, the first one? Yeah, I mean, so the the period of of kind of gaming history that fascinates me and, and was super influential was this kind of text adventure. At, at some point, somebody coined the phrase bookware. Which I think stuck slightly. One of one of the things that I find myself doing a lot in gaming is the the memory of the industry is is very bad, right? The short term memory of the industry is quite mm. poor. Yes. And so everybody's like, oh, finally we have these video games that are telling stories, that have proper writing and characters and are tackling themes and subjects, or you know have types of gameplay that are very innovative. Mm. You know, thinking that all we were playing in the eighties was Pac Man or whatever. But this particular era to me is fascinating because it was a point where the big companies, so the Electronic Arts, the Activisions, everybody was like, hey, video games are this cool new thing. And because of the state of the technology, the synergy that they were seeing then versus, you know, now it's all Hollywood meets video games. Back then they were like, well, hey, what what can this bring to literature? They started bringing in quote unquote real writers to create these things. You know, again, as, as somebody that has, has always been interested in storytelling and, and what the computer can bring to that. I guess fascinating to see, you know, how some of these were successful, successful experiments. Some of them were not. Some of them are very interesting now. And, and as we'll see, like some of them have been quite influential. So yeah. if, if we go on the order I sent you, which was not necessarily very thought through, but uh, the first one is actually arguably my favorite game of all time. Really? Okay. Which I managed to kill dead an IGN reporter I, her story won an award at the South by Southwest Games Festival and the South by Game Awards were actually quite, I went out there thinking it would be very cool and hip, um, like kind of South by, but they were very like capital G games, right. like lots of bass drops and machine guns and explosions. So it was, it was a very weird atmosphere in which her story won and coming off stage, I was kind of jumped and they were like, Hey, Sam. You just won this award. That's fantastic. What's your favorite game of all time? <laughs> and I said, uh, it would be Steve Moretzky's A Mind Forever Voyaging. <laughs> and they had, that was it. There was no. How many guns has it got? <laughs> I mean, it does have some, but there was no comeback. Harry lay on his bed and picked up the first sheet of the manuscript with trembling hands. Pages seemed to vibrate with magic, and as he began reading, the magic flowed out of the story and surrounded him. His bedroom vanished in a haze of images and excitement. A brief moment and an eternity later, the story was done. But before the world around him quite settled back into place, Perry knew that more than anything else, he wanted to be a writer. So this is an, an incredible video game in, in the, this period of like 
commercial text adventure development were were so far beyond everyone else. You know, they essentially invented the form with with Zork. <laughs> they did so many interesting things, like they were pioneering in, in like the computer system they created to make these text games was in itself innovative. It was a virtual language, so it, it existed independent of the computers, so they were able to port them and spread them, and, and that became a, you know something that was very yeah. interesting later. So a bit like Twine today or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like it's, it's, I think, even more clever in that it's like essentially its own, like, pretend computer running so you write code for this pretend computer they came from like mit right they were all computer yes. people from mm. mit so they were very smart and so what what does what do you do in a, a mind forever voyaging for those who haven't heard of it so so this is a game that at the time was so different and interesting that people didn't necessarily realize either so like this it's not like every game was like this back then so the idea is uh in, in the simplest description um you play the character of a artificial intelligence uh, who's been created by this political scientist and he is running simulations of a small town in the US to test out the ramifications of a political plan by a, a guy who's essentially Reagan. The game comes with a novella and in the novella it's the story of this AI, uh, this character who's, who's growing up through his formative years and reaches a, uh, adulthood and then the voice of God comes in and says, by the way, you're in artificial intelligence. None of this is real. And, you know, Assassin's Creed kind of ripped this off, or maybe they didn't rip it off, but like used this idea later of like, oh, if we treat the world of the video game as a simulation, it allows us to kind of lampshade certain aspects and, and, and kind of play with it. So you are, for most of the game, essentially this AI who has a, a identity and a life in this small town, Rockville. The beautiful thing about the game, it, it, is not full of puzzles and challenges and and all the things that you would have expected at the time. It's essentially an open world city, you know, long before Grand Theft Auto. And you can walk around this simulated small town America. It has day-night cycle. Things happen. You can go places, go watch a sports game, buy a meal, uh, read a newspaper. And at the start of the game... This is all relate to you via text. There's no graphical representation. 100% yeah. text. Everything is described. And, you know, you type, go north you know, sit at a table, eat food, whatever. Your initial objective is, hey, to test out this plan, here is a list of the 10 things we would like you to do. So it'll say, you know, go to a sports game, buy food, you know, visit a bank. Like it's 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 kind of like, here are, the, here are some representative things that Americans will do in their day-to-day -day life. <laughs> and you do these 10 things and, and tick off the checklist and you have the ability to record what you're seeing is how this is introduced. So you would, you know, start recording, go and eat a meal at a restaurant and then you can submit that to your boss and they can analyze the data or whatever. And what happens is when you've done enough of these things, there's enough data for the simulation to then proceed and predict the next five years. So you then jump forward five years and get to live out a moment in time in the next five years. You do this like a few times and the scientist who's your father slash boss slash creator or whatever says, this is great. Like we have all the information. Looks like the plan is going to be great for America. I'll give all this to the politicians. Thanks. Just go off and have fun. Like, so immediately, having essentially achieved what appeared to be the purpose of the game, you're told, just, just noodle around. And you're given no objective. And what happens is you go back into the simulation and wander around. And then the simulation says, oh, cool, we've unlocked the next five years because you've been noodling around. And so you jump to the next five years and continue to noodle around. And you start to notice there's a few things that are a little bit iffy going on. And then you continue 
to, to populate it and you can push to the next five years. And eventually you can push far enough into the future that it becomes very, very bad. And what happens is as a player, you notice that this is happening and give yourself the mission of like, oh shit, someone should know about this. So you start capturing evidence of what you think is bad stuff, right? As a, this kind of essentially a virtual citizen journalist and then giving it back to your boss. And at some point then your boss is like, holy shit, like this is awful. Uh, we need to go show this to people. So on one hand, like the, the freedom, the idea that without any objective, your, your curiosity as a player, your ability to observe and be like, oh shit, this is something I need to do without ever being like told, uh, was, was kind of magical. And then just yeah. alongside that, the idea that the key mechanic of this game was witnessing, was just like observing. Like, you know, it wasn't hitting things with a sword. It wasn't all these, you know, very obvious kind of gaming mechanics. It was like, no, 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 the ability to kind of weaponize your gaze and have that be significant was was kind of amazing. It's highly significant, um, sophisticated, isn't it? Really, for the era, this is the mid nineteen eighties. That the games, the games out. This, um, you know, games have struggled to do that kind of thing ever since, really, haven't they? Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because if you look at the record of the time, a lot of people didn't get it. Uh, there were a lot of people, especially internally, I think at Infocom, who were like, "This shouldn't be. This shouldn't be politics in our video games." And and found if people criticized it or engaged with it usefully. At the time, they would say that perhaps the attack on kind of Reagan era politics was a bit heavy. But I think in retrospect, yeah. and because it's right in the in the middle of Reagan's, he's going into his second term, isn't he? Yeah, when the game comes out around then. Yeah, so it's it's right in there. So with the you know things are polarized. I saw that someone actually reached out and interviewed Moretsky when the Trump stuff <laughs> happened because they were like, "This is literally so much of this." is very specifically predicted in your game. Uh, the rise of QAnon, the particular methodologies of Trump, some of the more extreme kind of violence and, and outcomes of, of the Trump presidency. These were all the things that at the time people were saying these are very heavy-handed, right? This is at the time, because there was this internal debate in Infocom about like, should we be putting something out that's this polarizing and this political and, and this ambitious, you know, in an artistic sense. Moreski had it in his head that like this could really cause waves like hey am I going to be hauled mm. up before the senate to like answer for this political video game and the disappointing outcome was that it people just didn't notice paid enough attention for it to get that recognition um it it just kind of people that got it got it but you know in retrospect it's it's just it's a fascinating predictor of so much of what's come since in terms of open world games oh, yeah. in terms of you know city simulating yeah. but also just has such a different agenda and ambition for video games um than than what we would think of as the mainstream now you, you're playing this game when you're still quite young how much of that satirical texture are you noticing at that at this point in your life so i think i probably only appreciated a mind forever voyaging slightly later so there was this incredible thing that I think it was Activision bought out the entire Infocom catalog at some point. And in the late nineties, they basically put all of the games into a box on discs and reissued them, which was mind blowing. Cause, cause when I was on my Amstrad CPC, like the Infocom games were the most expensive premium things 
like they were they were very expensive they came in these very luxurious pieces of packaging i probably only had access to one or two of them you know so the infocom stuff again like i lived a lot of it through the magazine pages reading about it and so when this collection came out uh, i was i guess on my way to like university so i was a bit older and more sophisticated then it was this treasure trove of these games and so definitely like in revisiting all of them playing them all um you know mind forever voyaging was at that point the one that absolutely stood out as being like ahead of its time and and my favorite and your second choice is also from around a similar time the mid 80s yes mind wheel You lie face up on a table in a stark laboratory. There is a hospital smell and dozens of electrodes are attached to your body. Suspended in front of you is a computer keyboard. This is such a fascinating little offshoot of gaming history. So I'm going to blank on the name of the company that created this now, but... Uh, is this uh, Synapse software? Yes, Synapse, there you go. This company was set up with the goal of everything we do, we will bring in a real-world author and we are going to beat Infocom. Like, we are going to create the next generation of interactive fiction. So, Mindwheel is... It's the best thing they did, I think. It's the most successful of their games. And it's absolutely fascinating because it was written by Robert Pinsky, who would then go on to become an extremely acclaimed poet. I think at the time he was then a poet, but less acclaimed. So the idea of Mindwheel is... You're going inside the minds of some notable people. So there's, I think the game opens and you're inside a rock star. And there's also like uh, the Generalissimo. There's like a, a, a kind of fascist dictator. There's all these different key minds. And you're going inside like these strange dreamlike worlds that they've created. And it's coming from someone who, you know, is his day job is being a poet. Like obviously the language and the visuals are extremely evocative. And it, it reasonably fearlessly, like, again, similar to some extent what a mind for Voyaging was doing, doesn't have some of the baggage of what a game should be. Um, and it, it's a very strange game to play now because the Synapse interface is it's a little bit like, slightly like talking to these AI <laughs> chatbots now in that, whereas, you know, all of these games, you would type in sentences to tell the game what to do right so you could say pick up the bottle from the table or put the pour the water into the bottle ask bob about his day or whatever and then with the infocom one uh it was very sophisticated and it was very specific so if it didn't understand it would tell you why it didn't understand and you would have to rephrase the synapse model was a little bit fuzzier <laughs> to to make it feel more like you're having a natural conversation it would be less robotic about things which allowed you to sometimes type things that you're like wow i can't believe the computer understood this like it's very similar i think the experience of playing this game back then is probably very similar to now talking to a chat these these kind of ai chatbots and being impressed but sometimes it would misunderstand you or, or would make some strange leaps and the other thing that synapse did was that the whole thing is running in real time so the convention for most of these text games is that you take turns uh, the game will print some text out you'll read it you then have as long as you want to type your reply so it you know it, it like reading a piece of linear fiction the the sense of 
real-time progression is kind of in your head. Yeah, you set the pace. Yeah, with Synapse's games, the game was constantly running. So there would be action sequences in which the the thing is chasing you or, you know, the, the room is filling up with water or whatever. And you have to act within the time frame. So the weird thing is back then, you know, you're asking about a mind frame of voyaging. Like this is all rendered just in text. But at that time, actually text was maybe the closest we were to virtual reality in terms of the detail and and how the simulation could feel alive you know whereas the the real-time graphics were just so primitive that you weren't going to get that same feel so there was definitely there was a real sense of like of 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 of, of magic to these synapse games again like to go back to it now and play it it doesn't feel dated because of it you know, it's it's very unique artistic voice. You know, trying to be in some cases like at the forefront of like what are we trying to do with interactive narrative? And then you go back and, and sometimes it can be very humbling to go back and be like, Oh shit, like this was thirty five <laughs> years ago and yeah. oh, they were doing this thing. Like, oh man. But it should be said Robert Pinsky did go on to become the US poet laureate, didn't he? So Yeah. Not not all text adventures are being written by um by writers of the <laughs> no like i said but at this period it's fascinating because they were bringing pretty notable authors douglas adams was working with infocom on his hitchhiker game and he this other game bureaucracy a lot of these authors were really really into the idea you know it wasn't like the jerry Bruckheimer of being like i'm gonna make video games because the, the revenue is there like the, you know some a lot of these people the, the the way in which like home computing was this hobbyist thing like it was slight it was definitely somewhat geeky so you know if they had this predilection they kind of had like a level of kind of mm. interest in and that you know we're playing the things and they were playing mm. the infocom games like i think the douglas adams thing with infocom kicked off because he was obsessed with their games and he was like right into them asking for tips or whatever so yeah no i think as well um some of the simon and schuster and random house which is now part of penguin they had their own interactive fiction divisions at that time didn't they which sort of legitimizes it makes it a short hop for for a professional author or or writer to to start working in in this medium i suppose yeah i mean i think it definitely felt felt exciting and, and felt achievable as well i guess as much as as much as we think of like early video games as being for children, to get into this expensive hobbyist thing, like actually a lot of the audience skewed older. So I think there was probably a good crossover of like who's who's reading books and reading a certain type of book and also has this hobby. And, you know, there is kind of a nice crossover. So your third choice, uh, when you first sent you through, I was like, oh, I know this game. And then you sent the follow-up email saying, I actually mean the version from 1986. So can you tell us about that? Yes. So this this is always a good cheat if you're doing video game trivia <laughs> to try and mess people up in the way I did with you. It was either Activision or Electronic Arts. And let's say Electronic Arts could be wrong. Uh, this was like their big swing at the bookware, at the interactive literature electronic literature whatever they were calling it and yeah it's called portal has nothing to do with the more successful popular valve game this morning i spliced into med 10 for routine diagnostic augmentation we had a new viral disease here in Christchurch, something we hadn't seen in almost 20 years. It was nothing serious, a few sheep were showing signs of lethargy. 
Med 10 led me through the usual series. As we examined the viral DNA together, suddenly the mind link went crazy. It hit my hippocampus pretty hard because I started confabulating. A glowing tunnel, lights in the sky. A boy hunched over a console, walking through a meadow wet with dew. A series of random but intensely real images that took over awareness. Then, nothing. So the beautiful idea, I, I love the setup of this game. Where do you buy the game and you read the manual? And the idea is, if I get this right, you're an astronaut returning to Earth. You've been away doing astronaut stuff. And you get to Earth and every single human being has gone, disappeared. And there is this central computer, I believe called Homer, I could be wrong, um, that was essentially running the world. Like all of the networked computer systems that were running everything around the world is run by this AI. And uh, you go to the terminal to ask him like what happened to all the humans. And in the manual, it says because of certain failures or because these things are not being maintained, the voice and blah 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 interface has been powered down you'll have to use an old-fashioned manual keyboard interface whatever so there's like some kind of lamp shading of you're interacting with this super high-tech futuristic ai through your home computer and the whole game it, if you view it to be kind of reductive it's essentially a big hypertext thing essentially you have this this computer interface desktop and it has a bunch of icons and it allows you to there's like an, an uh, a news icon maybe <laughs> and an archive icon <laughs> and a health icon so if you guys like the health icon you can retrieve reports and and this computer was like tracking everybody's vitals you know like the, the little apple health was all being tracked through this guy and then you can go and read you know archive news articles and stuff to do with the military and when you come online and start the game the the ai says to you like, you know, my systems have been damaged and I can only access a very uh. small percentage of my records. But, like, if you go in and start accessing records and pulling them up, like, I will be able to restore some integrity. So it has a similar exploratory kind of pitch uh. as a Mind Forever Voyaging. It is non-linear. So you're pulling up these records in a kind of non-linear way. It has the sense of, of like, rooting around in a file system to discover uh -huh. secrets. So it, it's essentially the biggest murder mystery ever. Like, who killed every single human being uh -huh. on the planet? Like, I discovered it when I was making Her Story in 2014. Uh -huh. I you know, had this idea that was built around interrogating a computer interface and computer database. Uh -huh. And it it felt mostly something that had occurred to me, you know, somewhat uniquely. But I knew that, like, as a kid, I had played games. There was, um, there was a Frederick Forsyth game called The Fourth Protocol, which was an adaptation of one of uh -huh. his books which took place in a, a kind of similar iconic interface. There were like a bunch of games that I played. In developing her story, I went back to those like, oh, let me go remind myself like what these right. things were doing. Mm -hmm. As per earlier, I don't think I'd played any mm -hmm. of those games. I think I'd seen the screenshots mm -hmm. and, and read about them and found the whole idea mm -hmm. fascinating. In kind of digging around, you know, like who else has done video games where you're exploring things through mm -hmm. the database? Discovered mm -hmm. Portal which, you know, has an amount, has a certain reputation amongst people that uh, track this history uh -huh. and stuff. But I had never played it or heard of it. And I tracked down a copy <laughs> of it and played it. And it was really exciting wow. because I loved it. And the good thing was I loved it and I loved the idea of it. But it was clear to me that definitely there was still an opportunity for me to do something yeah, interesting right. that hadn't been done <laughs> before. But yeah, I'd love, love for more people to check out Portal. It's, it's really cool. I... I played it on a pretty crappy 
I guess this would have probably in my head I remember playing it on a fairly crappy computer and it it kind of added right yeah added to the appeal the appeal of it like there was when her story came out there was a art gallery in I think it was Montreal and like a lot of people were kind of exhibiting her story um in in their kind of art you know art slash digital whatever exhibits <laughs> and usually that means they'll put like a, a screen on the wall and there'll be a little plaque or whatever but this particular art gallery set dressed their basement to look like a little police oh, wow. detective office and got a you know cathode ray monitor and, and put coffee stains on the table and so oh, that's the amazing whole thing. so i didn't quite have that playing portal but i do remember playing it on on a pretty primitive computer that definitely kind of added to the this sense of like this kind of lo-fi interface into this very rich kind of sci-fi story introducing wondersuite from bluehost.com website creation is hard but now with bluehost you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique wordpress website or store right away from there you can customize your design colors and content and Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I just want to wind the clock back a little bit. You know, you talk about when you were a child and doing pixel art and coming up with game designs, it looked like you were going to become a game designer, I suppose. But that's that's not what happened. You moved to America to join a dot-com company. Is that right? Did that Was that derailing your plans or how did that come about? Like the, the, the short version is that, you know, growing up, my dad, the civil engineer, was like the first person in his family to go to university. Both our families were kind of, uh, kind of traditional British working class families. So I had no real awareness that if you wanted a career in the arts, broadly speaking, like that was a thing you could do. And certainly like, you know, cutting off my dad, it was like, you know, you'll go to university to get a good degree, to get a professional job. Like that's how things work in the UK. As much as I was like making all these things and really interested in them, like I said, I think my dream job would have been to be a painter. It was never really a thing I had a concrete plan for. And certainly like, Going off to university, the general advice was like, hey, you can keep painting as a hobby. And, you know, at university, I got really into the interactive. There was this kind of rebirth of the interactive fiction scene in the late 90s. And I got really into that. But that was very clear. Like everyone in that scene knew that nobody was paying money for interactive fiction anymore at that point. So everyone was very much doing it for the art rather than seeing it as as a path to be a game designer right like now people might apply for a job with a twine game be like hey i want to be a narrative designer like that didn't exist as a route or as a as an idea back then so you know i think if you had cracked open my brain and been like hey what do you want to do these things might have floated up but finished university and i had a degree in math ultimately there and i didn't want to do any of the things that you can do with a degree in math and so this got this job in america because it sounded exciting to go and move to america and the guy running the company it's less funny now but he was like a very much on the kind of elon musk end of the spectrum uh extremely wealthy had lots people loved interviewing him because he had lots of silly ideas and at the time it sounded very it was like hey if i'm going to do a job 
I might as well go to America and work for this guy that's building a replica French chateau in the Virginia countryside <laughs> and wants to put chips inside everyone's head. That kind of sounds interesting. <laughs> and and the, if you were to draw arrows between all these things, like the the principal business of that company was business intelligence and databases. And at the time, they were the only company that could run logic on, I'm going to say terabyte databases, which is obviously, I have one sat on my desk now. Um, but back then, that was a big thing. And so all the big supermarkets and banks and stuff would want to use this software. And it was 100% anticipating everything that would go wrong with uh -huh. big data and and how our world has changed. But, uh, but slightly being pitched as this kind of utopian tech thing. So, you know, a year... I was there for like a year and then uh, some interesting things happened with their financials. They had this thing called the boot camp where everybody that was employed by the company had to spend six weeks learning their software and creating products with it. And then, so like, you know, whatever, you know, even if you're a top exec or if you were working, uh, you know, if you're a receptionist or whatever, then they wanted everybody to like drink the Kool-Aid. One of the things you got to do on this boot camp towards the end was they gave you a data set from someone like Walmart. It was like, here is X gigabytes of Walmart data and using the the software to do like the basket analysis stuff on that. That was very exciting to me because it was very much finding a story, writing, like making a story out of these little, you know, it's very much found art. And, you know, there's all the stuff of like, oh, we've shown that there is, you know, people that buy nappies have a, strong cross by with like buying beer right because like uh first time fathers will be sent out to buy nappies so they'll buy themselves a case of beer and their favorite story was they they realized for victoria's secret that they weren't selling any black bras in on the west coast because everyone was wearing white t-shirts and it was hot um and this was like a this was like an obvious thing that no one had ever realized or thought about until the data showed it them but i remember just being really excited about exploring like this data of of these individuals and what they were buying and um, clearly having ended up making a series of what you could describe as like database stories you know you could make a connection there or it was just you know it was something <laughs> that was there already but um and then at, at some point you come back to the uk that sort of ex blows up i suppose and you you move back and you you get into the video game industry. And is it around this time that you make the fourth game on your list? If you look back, it would probably be quite easy to to make it sound all very intentional. But I also Isle was a game I made in university. There was this spark of this renewed interest in interactive fiction in the late nineties. And it was a group of people who met over the internet. Most of us, I think, were in university. If you're at university, you had a computer lab and you had access to unlimited time on the internet there was a couple of like discussion groups like rec arts int fiction and rec games int fiction i think which <laughs> shows the the polarity there but um and it was this incredible group of people who had a nostalgia for these classic infocom games and classic text games and we had access to tools that allowed us to make our own um there's a couple of things there's a, a guy graham nelson who replicate first replicated infocom's virtual machine and then created his own iteration of it that was a free tool so you could go off and make your own right text games and what a lot of these people did was not just attempt to replicate the experiences of the infocom games but attempt to take them further and so there was an annual competition uh which is where a lot of the more interesting or experimental games would get released and it was a very fun 
competitive environment of everybody trying to kind of one-up each other on like how ambitious or clever or interesting their projects were. And I all was my attempt to kind of contribute to that. Late Thursday night. You've had a hard day and the last thing you need is this. Shopping. Luckily, the place is pretty empty and you're progressing rapidly. On to the next aisle. Interesting. Fresh gnocchi. You haven't had any of that since Rome. There is a brunette woman a few meters ahead filling her trolley with sauces. The premise of Isle, it's ostensibly a piece of interactive fiction or a text adventure and it opens in the pastor aisle of a supermarket and your character has like some reminiscence about Noki, I think in particular and then you can type anything you can type a lot more things than you normally would be able to type in these kinds of games the game has 130 something endings I think but well the way that's achieved and the trick is that the game lasts a single turn okay so you type something mm-hmm. The game will then, off of that, will riff on what you've said and kind of tell you a mini story. Okay, right. And then it will reset. And so it exists in a kind of literary multiverse in that, in, in telling the character to do things, you can create different characters, right? There is there is someone in there who is, is remembering this holiday to Rome where he ate Noki, and he's sad about it because on that holiday, his girlfriend died. And... In, in typing things and discovering elements of this story, it can then prompt further things. And so this kind of anticipates her story to some extent in that the name of this girlfriend does not appear in the opening text. But the more violent things your character does, the more violent the story you'll get usually. And so in, in doing one of these violent things, he might have a, a, a sudden horrendous flashback to seeing the character Claire die. So now you're like, oh, I have this character name that exists in my head right that is not in this opening text so then you can right. type remember claire y- yep. or you know, and, and and unlock more things so there's this it's not just kind of random access like there is some usefulness and sort of meta, meta story yeah and I, the neat thing about it which somebody else wrote a very good piece dissertation on it and i read it and was like yes that sounds very clever that's definitely what i was doing <laughs> uh there is an arc to it where as you play like trying to get a happy happy version of this story because a lot of the stories are sad mm. uh and and the discovery that the happier endings come about through attempting to make human contact and 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 there's this kind of arc and message to the game that gets you there the genesis for this game was as somebody that loved a mind forever voyaging and and these other experiments being in this scene where people were doing incredible things. So uh, Andrew Plotkin did this game called So Far, uh, which people were comparing with like Bergman, like in, in its way is allegorical fantasy. You know, uh, Adam Cadre was uh, did this game Photopia, which everyone kind of loved. Yep, there were these really interesting things where people were attempting to tell different types of, of story and be very serious and, and explore very specific emotions. But because we still had this connection back to the classic games and the kind of nostalgia for them, and as well the limits of the medium, as a player, you would often still just kind of fuck about. Um, so 
and and you see this in in games now but like upon launching a fresh piece of interactive fiction one of the things you'll instinctively do is attempt to kind of test the limits of the simulation see how well implemented everything is and oftentimes the the tradition in text adventures was typing dumb things should get you a clever answer right like mm, so yeah. if you would uh you know attempt to kiss a character that you should not be kissing or just like often there was like violent or or silly actions so you know if you attempt to kiss an inanimate object it would have something funny to say about that if you would usually uh like the default response if you try and hit something or smash something you would say violence is not the answer right but you might get more and more specific versions so a thing you would often do on launching one of these games is kind of mess around in a way that was often at odds with the seriousness of the fiction. And it annoyed me that authors were having to write snarky, funny responses to silly things within the text of their more serious work. It doubly annoyed me that as a player, I would attempt to put, like, you know, would type these silly things in. So the genesis of Isle was, I'm going to make a game where if you type that dumb stuff, the game runs with it <laughs> right so if you say kill character <laughs> expecting a snarky funny response well let's get the story where this person actually attempts to kill the random stranger in the pastoral right like if you're attempting to kiss a stranger that stops being funny at the point where it, it actually gets enacted right so that was like the and, and part of that genesis was like oh if i'm doing this thing that is you know aggressively pushing back against this mode what's the most boring thing what's the most boring location like we're not going to be in an elvish castle we're not going to be on a space station we'll be in a supermarket aisle amazing that will be the jumping off point for this thing and i think like that as the starting point but then as i developed it and as people play tested it half the stories and endings in the game came in response to me sending it to play testers and then them typing things and me being like oh i didn't think to type that right so i think this this kind of arc of unlocking the happier endings and the more human endings came about through you know the playtesters pushing that and through me spending more time in, in myself wanting to get away from just like you know the one note idea of you'll you'll time violent things and you'll get like a, a sad violent story back did um of the I, I think you said 140 odd um stories that you wrote were, were any sort of never found by players i don't think so like i think players are pretty damn good yeah at, enumerating i know that like this i've lost the source code a long time ago so i can't do anything with it but i have like a couple of requests from players for things that weren't and it was like pretty methodical in terms of like here is every single object that exists in this scene here are the every you know everything you could possibly ask to do to these things and then let's make sure the parser understands that but interestingly i don't know what this says about humans the actions that I had not implemented that I got the most requests for involved hair. And this is maybe partly due to language. So there's a character, there's a brunette, I believe, further down the aisle. And so I guess by by identifying her with her hair color, we're already kind of surfacing the hair. But there's a lot of people who are like, I wanted to pull her hair. Sniff hair. <laughs> you might be able i can't remember you might be able to smell hair in the game but there were definitely a couple of actions involving her hair right that mm. were not supported by the game which you know <laughs> i will never get to add anyway but um you know so i so i made isle 
it was like a it's something of a hit i think i released it outside of the competition <laughs> but it like some of the more notable people there really liked it and wrote <laughs> nice reviews and then uh you know then i left university went off and got this job and you know that was was this cool thing i'd put out there onto the internet <laughs> you know then jump forward to the point where i had slightly accidentally got a job in the games industry <laughs> so as a friend invited you is that right yeah i'd i'd come back from america and i had two jobs out there working for dot-com people and the whole dot-com thing was collapsing it was kind of hard to get a job because i was no longer a fresh graduate but my experience on paper was working for dot-com companies um most of the jobs that were available you know i didn't really know what i wanted to do and i had a friend who worked at a video game company and he knew that i was an artist so he suggested i get a job as a video game artist so i kind of knocked together a portfolio downloaded some cracked versions of the various 3d packages taught myself them knocked out a bunch of like 3d characters and did some level design and concept art and just put this horrendous package together which i think has no longer exists on the internet like it it predates you know the mass archiving of the internet so i'm safe and that got me a job working on the the kind of first person shooter serious sam for the gamecube and then uh, kind of rapidly i moved up and then moved over to design mm-hmm. became a lead designer yeah and got a chance to work on the silent hill franchise this is if we went into this this would be a whole podcast on its own and but, you know, the end of that story is that I got to make this game Silent Hill Shattered Memories, which was the first time I had had the chance to be like, here's my idea for what a video game should look like and how we should tell a story in a third-person video game. And Here are some interesting framing devices. And it was really pulling all of the interactive fiction stuff from the late 90s, all of the stuff that was interesting to me there, and trying to put that uh-huh. into a commercial video game. Yes. Um, and that was like relatively successful and we managed to actually execute on a lot of it yeah so hugely well regarded and and you know to to buy that game now on playstation 2 you got it like it's 200 pounds on ebay or something so people still want to play it eagerly don't they yeah it's it's that weird thing of you know so the wii version is the version that you should play right um, (laughs) if you track it down and but the effort now you know so that's that was a game that came out in 2009 and is essentially dead. Like, you know, meaningfully, only the most hardcore collectors are going to go and get themselves a physical Wii console, you know, buy the disc for $300 and play it. And, and not just the effort to physically play it, but just aesthetically, like, you know, what was cutting edge 3D characters and textured environments in 2009 on a Wii, you know, it has aged... You know, and some you know some eras of 3D graphics have aged better than others, but I think you know that's like an era where it's you know if you squint you're like oh this is kind of nice, but it's <laughs> it's harder to immerse yourself in the way that you would have been able to in 2009, right? Right. If you were to play that today, so it's it's weird being in this industry where things age that rapidly. Yeah, it's it's kind of tragic, isn't it? This this brings us, I think, to your to your last choice, which. Uh, comes out after you've after you've created silent hill shattered memories but before you fully go independent to make her story can you can you tell us about your last choice oh i think i i think this is have i I got the wrong one i think we've done this i've tricked you again 
once again okay <laughs> i think this is magnificent oh dear i'm, just, I'm much too basic i did once taste. make a joke about how if you want to name your video game and have a successful video game then you should steal the name of of a piece of forgotten interactive fiction okay so your choice isn't amnesia the dark descent it's amnesia a different one yes so i mean okay. i will say amnesia dark descent is a fascinating video game and <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, is very much a good pairing with Silent Hill Shadow Memories because we were both wrestling with, you know, what what should a horror video game look like <laughs> if it isn't Resident Evil? <laughs> um, no, so this is another piece. And this is like, this pairs very nicely with A Mind Forever Voyaging and Portal. Um, so Amnesia... wake up feeling wonderful, but also in some indefinable way strange. Slowly, as you lie there on the cool bedspread, it dawns on you that you have absolutely no idea where you are. A hotel room, by the look of it, but with the curtains drawn, you don't know in what city or even what country. I'm aware that whenever I say this guy's name, I'm possibly mispronouncing it because I've only ever read read it. But the sci-fi writer Thomas M. Dish, who was a pretty notable sci-fi writer. Yeah, another literary figure of, of the 80s, right? He was yeah. brought in to make a video game and he made this game called Amnesia. Now, in his favor, I think at this point, Amnesia plots were not as overdone in video games. That would be a whole discussion in itself, right, of, of like... Using amnesia as a plot device is very convenient for video games because you kind of put everyone on a, a you know, an even footing. Sure. But this is, on some levels, so ambitious. The, the premise of the game, you wake up with amnesia in a hotel in New York. That's like all you're given. And very quickly, you realize there is a scary man from Texas who is insisting that you should be marrying his daughter and and there is like one of the early bad endings you can get in the game is is a kind of shotgun wedding scenario but it unfolds i think there's quite an elaborate story to do with conspiracies and pharmaceutical companies but the premise of this game it goes much further beyond the mind forever voyaging is the entirety of new york is simulated in this game and this is coming from a an outsider perspective and obviously Moretzky is is with a mind for voyaging is coming from the interactive fiction world but clearly there is something when you look at the design of these classic video games and the extent to which map making and and you know how do I map out this environment and everything would be kind of laid out and have connections whether that was a dungeon in a fantasy game or or, or whatever and you know both of them have clearly looked at the map of a city or a town and been like, oh, this is easily to transpose to a video game experience. The idea with Amnesia is the entire, every single cross street from Manhattan is in this wow. game. In text. It's all, you know, it's all text. Uh, it has a fully functioning subway system. 
um, and this is one of the reasons it's very hard to play now. It has like one of those classic hunger simulators running alongside. So your character has to eat, your character has to drink, otherwise they will die. Um, and that's usually the thing that ends up killing you is, is <laughs> wandering around. Uh, you should forget to eat. Or, or struggling to figure out like, oh, I don't have any money to buy the hot dog from the hot dog vendor or whatever. Um, but it, 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 it has a little bit of that synapsy thing of it feeling initially very magical and simulated because you're like, holy shit, like, I can do anything and go anywhere. Like, I can. <laughs> and, and this initial, the initial opening is a pretty nicely simulated of you kind of, I believe you wake up and there's like a knock at the door in the hotel and it's like room service is bringing you something and there's the panic of like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Having to get some clothes on or whatever. Um, I believe you can run out naked. Like and, and and the game deals with that, but it's it's like quite painful to play because of all these restrictions. And ultimately, the the simulation of New York is something of a a mirage, right? It's so I've played it, I've attempted a couple of times to play it, and uh, and it always ends up being too tedious. <laughs> um, but it's got like a whole novel's worth of text in there. I believe it's this is on this is on my like Amazon wish list. Someone recently put out a book that I think was like half making of and half like the entire design document or script to this game. Oh, interesting. It's one of those where it not actually being very good is slightly more inspiring, right? Like to play, you know, as much as like a mind forever voyaging as dated in some ways, like it's still pretty you could it's still great. Like it, it still does all the things. I it think, holds you up. know, to right. some extent portal if you make peace with the fact that this is not uh, a very dynamic experience, you can still appreciate it. But when you play Amnesia, it is this glimpse at, at, at a magic that is not quite pulling off. And, it, and it's exciting because, yeah, if you think, you know, now if somebody brings in a notable name for another medium into video games, it might be, uh, I don't know, like a non-awful example you know bringing george rr R. martin in to write law for elden ring it's like it's it's like harmless and it's clear how he might bring something to that and, and <laughs> kind of embellish things but the idea that you would bring someone in to actually inject some exciting ambition and to take to give you a story or an idea for a game that would not otherwise have existed like i think that that's what's exciting about all this bookware stuff you know to to play amnesia now and to see what it's trying to do, there probably isn't anything that has done it since, right? Like, no one has really created something which has this this kind of narrative, um, the kind of ideas that it's exploring, partly because it's hard. Uh, yes, right, right. And, you know, I think, you know, but all these games, especially Amnesia and Mind Forever Voyaging, have an appreciation of, like, space as being an integral uh, you know, and geography is an integral part of video games which I think is the thing we have made good uh, uh, right like if I play Zelda Breath of the Wild or I play uh, Elden Ring or I play Grand Theft Auto 5 the ability to freely walk around a very beautiful or convincing looking space I think we've clearly done right like I think if you play um, the most recent Spider-Man game you know that is a pretty good approximation of walking around new york um all of the other stuff that's in amnesia which is the kind of the the narrative aspects and the human aspects and things 
the idea of waking up naked in an unknown hotel room and having to quickly scramble. Those are the things that we, you know, we we've struggled to do. Right? We can make people we don't have drive that. and shoot and run and and things. But you know, when I play these older games, there is that sense of freedom mm. and magic. Um, and also, I guess, sort of un, unknown depth to them. So w- with some of the games you're referring to there, the modern games, you sort of, you have a map, you can see the boundaries, you can see your to-do list, I suppose, and you have a good sense of when you're coming to the end of it. But with all of these choices, and I think with your, your own games that you've you've made, your your trilogy of of games... They're sort of, you're not quite sure of the shape of it at any time it goes. You're not sure how deep it goes. And that seems like uh, something that games aren't so good at at offering players. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I find most exciting. The trite response, I think, when her story came out was people saying, why don't you just upload a bunch of clips to YouTube? This this isn't a game. But the excitement to me was the idea of, of that unboundedness of like, when you start playing her story, and you don't really know what you're in for, and you start discovering clips, every time you discover a clip, it's a surprise. I just love that ability to conjure something up. Well, uh, thank you so much for for sharing with us your choices. I suppose when you hand this uh, console over to to your friends and family, (laughs) which is the game that you're going to encourage them to start with? Well, I mean, interestingly, not to... It would be very arrogant if I was giving this to my friends and family <laughs> and telling them to play Isle. But I have been told that, like, oftentimes people will use Isle as an intro to, like, classic interactive fiction because it is so straightforward and because it has responds to so many inputs. It's quite a, a, a useful little thing. It's probably quite misleading <laughs> if people were to then go from Isle to then explore the rest of it. Um uh-huh. Yeah, that's, I, I don't know, I guess. I think that's fine. You can pick Isle. Yeah, of course. We can go with yeah. Isle. They're going to be like, what? what is this console you give us? <laughs> Why does it have a keyboard attached? <laughs> I'm sure it's going to be a multi-million seller, Sam. Yeah. I want, this is this is gold. <laughs> this, I'm going to unlock all of that cash. Finally, I've figured out how to make money from video games. The, the text adventure bookware console. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Sam. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for sharing some of your story with us as well. I'm sure I could talk to you far more about everything you've done in the years after, um, uh, in more recent years, but um, maybe we'll have to get you back on again. Yeah, sure. This has been fun. Well, 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 I think that show requires a few post-listen notes. So firstly, thank you so much to my guest, Sam Barlow, the brilliant, lovely, BAFTA-winning Sam Barlow, who is, of course, writer and director most recently of Immortality, uh, and his company, Half Mermaid, the Brooklyn, New York-based Half Mermaid, uh, were the creators between uh, behind Immortality who are working on new projects now. So... Uh, You may have noticed this episode was not quite like the other ones. There are a few reasons for that. Firstly, of course, Sam has picked five uh, five bookware games. Uh, Wonderful that uh, he chose those games. Uh, As you can tell, half of which I didn't know about and hadn't played and misidentified and all sorts of embarrassing things like that. But uh, Sam guided us through 
what these games are and the appeal that they have held for him and the influence that they've been on him and his work um, uh, really wonderfully. Uh, but of course, there's no music in those games. So the bits that you heard were a little bit of just uh, ambient music that I put behind some vocal readings from a dear friend of mine, Ed Hawkins, who has a rather incredible voice. You may guess that Ed is in fact an opera singer, a bass singer. He has performed with Glyndebourne in the chorus and then he's been leads with English National Touring Opera and all sorts of other places. I won't listen because I'll probably get them wrong, but you can go to his website, edwardhawkinsbass.com and you can read about his work. Uh, he also has done, you know, audio books and readings and things like that, as you can tell from his wonderful voice. So thank you so much to Ed for reading those excerpts from those five games. I hope you enjoyed listening to them and I think they did. I wasn't quite sure if it was going to work, but I think it does sort of bring the style of each of Sam's choices to life a bit so we can get a sense of the vibe of those choices. Um, secondly, this was one of the one of the first episodes I recorded back when I was planning my perfect console before it came out. So I hadn't quite got the format totally nailed down. I neglected to go back over Sam's choices. Uh, again, apologies for that. Uh, so just as a recap, his five choices were a mind forever voyaging. Portal? No, not that one. Amnesia? No, not that one. Uh, Mindwheel and Isle. Uh, and some of those you can play online in your browser. Not all of them, but some of them are available to play. So search those up and you can uh, see what uh, Sam was talking about in each of those instances. Uh, next problem, I failed to ask Sam for a name for his console, so I emailed him and said, can you tell me what you would like to call your wonderful bookware console? And he wrote, sure, I guess as we're going for, inverted commas, retro console, but for bookware games, close inverted commas, uh, it should be some awful pun there, like, for example, the playbook. So Sam's console is called the playbook. Uh, there we go. Uh, the next problem, which again is uh, down to me. So normally I use I use the games as sort of scaffolding to ask about the guest's life. And I did do that a bit with this episode, but I didn't cover nearly as much ground as I wanted to and sort of uh, just let, let Sam talk about uh, what he loves about these games. To be honest, I was super interested in hearing him explaining these games. And I think by the end of that chat, I really had a good sense of where his... Uh, game writing and directing sensibilities have originated and I, I hope you have too so I think yeah slightly different episode a bit less biographical a bit less anecdote based but no less listenable I hope and uh, and enjoyable so yeah please um, you know forgive my uh, my failings there and celebrate what was what was good about that and of course thank you so much to Sam for just being so generous in in taking us through those choices and explaining what he finds appealing about them right if you would like to write to me with any thoughts with any comments you can do so at my perfect console at gmail.com if you would like to support the podcast, please do that. Pop along to www.patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and there you can become a supporter and you'll get all sorts of benefits for that. Become part of the community around the game. You get your episodes early and ad-free 
Uh, you get some bonus content and you also get voting rights. You get heads up of the four or five guests that are coming up uh, each month, uh, long before they're announced to the general public. Loads of stuff like that. Anyway, you can go to patreon.com forward slash myperfectconsole and read up on that. Um, right, yes, you can follow along the podcast on twitter.com forward slash myperfectconsole with the O's removed from console. Uh, I haven't set up accounts on Threads or Blue Sky or any of the other social networks that are popping up every day at the moment. Um, forgive me for that. It's uh, I think I think there's enough. There's enough of a social media presence for you to find out what's going on with the podcast and to engage. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I'm quite just exhausted even thinking about that. Right. Well, uh, I'll be back again next week with another guest with their five games and with one more perfect console see you then